Let us pray. O Christ, as you promised, you have risen from the dead. Alleluia. In our fear, we have built ourselves on foundations of sand. Show us your truth, give us your joy, and establish us in eternal life. In your name, amen. Who are the people of God? Depending on various contextual clues, the answer might be Christians, or it might be Israel. Take Israel for a moment. They were told through Moses, but you are the ones that the Lord has chosen and has brought out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be a nation that is his possession, as is the case today. After that, it may or may not surprise you then to hear the words of Hosea, the prophet, to this same nation, you are not my people and I will not be the Lord for you. Of course, there were many centuries of time that spanned between those two prophets. By the time of Hosea, Israel had become so idolatrous that God described them in terms of an unfaithful wife. They had altars to God, but those altars included golden calves, and they had decided to worship God however they wanted to, rejecting anything God actually said. Amos prophesied around the same time as Hosea, and he records how the king sent him away because God's word was uncomfortable, and the people preferred to hear something nicer. Part of God's judgment on Israel was this message, Look, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine into the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Can you imagine a harsher punishment? The people, because they had hardened their hearts to God's word, would no longer receive that life-giving fountain, that word. No possibility of salvation remained for them. There have been some who have described the United States of the 21st century as possessing a post-Christian culture. And many of us might have difficulty with this, having been raised in communities with a common understanding of Christian morals, at least, if not Christian references to the same Bible stories. But the fact is, nowadays, there are many who know the name Jesus only as well as they know other four-letter words. And nowadays, the word Christian might only be a word for nice at best, or for old racist white man at worst and all other kinds of words in between. It was to a nation of Israel that had forgotten to look at God's word in detail that the apostles preached. They understood the sacrifices and the laws and the ceremonies, but they didn't look any deeper. The Israel of Jesus' time was not so different from that of Hosea's time, which was destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Jesus quoted that prophet when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Simply put, Israel thought they worshipped God, when in reality they worshipped the stuff they liked. As long as they kept the outer form of the sacrifices and went to the worship when they should, and kept the external parts of God's law, then God couldn't be mad at them. 
Their fall is an example for us, as St. Paul says. Now these things took place as examples to warn us not to desire evil things the way they did. And so we should examine ourselves. So let him who thinks he stands be careful that he does not fall. This is where we begin to see our need and the need of the whole world around us. The perfection that we seek is impossible to reach. This world is racked with anxiety and depression and other great difficulties. And we can see further the commands of God impossible for us to keep. We see ourselves surrounded by the locked stone tomb of death. This is also exactly where the hope comes in. The first gospel sermon preached after Jesus' ascension came from Peter on the day of Pentecost, and he said, Jesus the Nazarene was a man recommended to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man who was handed over by God's set plan and foreknowledge, you killed by having lawless men nail him to a cross. He is the one God raised up by freeing him from the agony of death because death was not able to hold him in its grip. That whole sermon was centered in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, you'll find every message preached by the apostles is centered in the resurrection of Jesus. Whether they preached to Jews or to Gentiles, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is the main point. That remains the main point for you today. Jesus is raised. This happened. This is the message you are blessed also to take with you in the dark world. This culture that doesn't know who Jesus is can hear from you that he is the Lord God himself who came out of the grave to give you, yes, you, life. Not everybody will believe you, but that's not your concern. Instead, praise God that you are given that message to share and given the faith to believe it. His word will make known his own results. Only tell this beautiful news as we sing in our hymn, He is a Risen, Glorious Word, hymn 348.
Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This is the good news. Literally, the gospel, Christ is risen from the dead. As he died hanging on the cross, there was darkness over all the land. But now, on the third day, the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings. Having passed through our death, Jesus brings us life. Having passed through our sin, Jesus brings us righteousness. And now he brings us through fear, and fear is overcome by joy. And further, because in Jesus the work is done, there is now new work to do, and that is to tell the good news. The early moments of this day are not so peaceful. It's not a relaxing and calm dawn that comes on Easter morning. Instead, suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he rolled away the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so terrified of him that they shook and became like dead men. It's as though God were trying to startle his creation awake on this important day. The women would certainly have been afraid as they came to the tomb. Like anyone who saw an angel, they would have been ready to fall and hide their faces before such radiant holiness. But the angel told them, do not be afraid. As it always is with the angels who bring good news, the message begins with the assurance that there's no need to fear. There was already plenty for these women to be afraid of. They'd witnessed Jesus, their teacher and Lord, their beloved Savior, murdered grotesquely in front of them. On despicable display before the whole world as he was raised on the cross. This gentle Savior who had told them your sins have been forgiven was hated and spat upon. This powerful teacher who taught them as one who had authority, not like their experts in the law, was overcome by those experts, the people who didn't like what he had to say, and he was killed. Had his words failed? Was his authority meaningless? Was his forgiveness empty? how much there was for them to fear. And add to that the fact that there was a massive stone and a guard placed to prevent anyone from disturbing Jesus' body. And what could these women have hoped for? They were weak and lowly and could only hope for mercy. Would the soldiers give that to them? Jesus had given them mercy, but could they hope for any more? Even that wasn't all. Now, as they approach, things go from bad to worse with an earthquake and a glorious messenger from heaven, terrifying messenger. Because their Savior was dead, they had to conclude that they were still in their sins and the holiness of God would have to destroy them. Fire would come out and devour them as it had devoured Aaron's sons who had tried to offer unauthorized fire On God's altar, the earth would have to open up and swallow them as it had swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all those who rebelled against God in the wilderness. They had to conclude they were doomed. The angel spoke. Do not 
be afraid. And maybe you've been in a situation before, a really terrifying situation, a storm or a hazardous road or something involving weapons and dangerous men. Imagine such a situation and imagine someone telling you at that moment, don't be afraid. On what grounds, you might ask. Why? Yeah, right. Don't be afraid. The danger's obvious. I'll stop being afraid when the danger's past. That's what the angel is saying, in fact. The danger was past. His holiness wasn't there to destroy these women, but to bring the message, I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Death is defeated. Sin is paid for. And fear is overcome by joy. As we see these women leaving the empty tomb, they go with conflicting emotions, with fear and great joy. It might be startling to us to see that they still are afraid. Wasn't this news enough? Haven't they been comforted? Well, in fact, that there was joy there that proves that, yes, they had been overwhelmingly comforted by this news. There was no joy in the moments before this. They were mourning, sorrowful, despairing, and afraid. But now, joy has entered in, and it sits beside the fear. We can remember that in our lives, before we enter into glory with Jesus, there is still much that makes us fear, even while we are joyful. You've heard this beautiful and comforting gospel of Jesus' resurrection for you, that you too will rise from the dead because of it. And because of this, you rejoice very much, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various kinds of trials. We are still trapped in a sinful flesh which can't help but do things contrary to God's will. When I want to do good, evil is present with me, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin. This itself can be a comfort, that you can feel this fear and still know that you have not been abandoned even because of those fearful feelings. Jesus has not rejected you because you're still afraid. Jesus has not taken back his gift of resurrection and life because you're anxious. Instead, as we see even moments after the women left the tomb, suddenly Jesus himself met them and said greetings. And even he then said to them again, do not be afraid. He says that to us so often because we so often need to hear it. He wasn't scolding them and he's not scolding you either. He saw exactly the comfort they needed as he sees exactly the comfort you need. He wasn't commanding them to control themselves, but he was offering himself to them and his comfort. And he offers the same comfort when he says to all of us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The way to remove our fear is not our work. All those women had hoped to do was embalm the body to make death seem just a little more palatable. They couldn't do any more than that. But Jesus gives the joy that overcomes fear. 
And he does it because he has removed all of our causes for fear. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus risen, therefore, we know that the work is done. But here is an added blessing that there's now new work for us to do. You'll notice what day these women came to the tomb. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week. That wasn't an accident. The whole of the Sabbath, Saturday, Jesus had rested in the grave. And all of the Jewish people rested from their work on that Sabbath. These women, being Jews, likewise, did not work. I can't imagine their rest was particularly restful, though, but perhaps they did find some comfort in that dark day with the light of God's word. It being the Sabbath day for the Passover, maybe they heard words like these, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt where you were slaves. For by the strength of his hand the Lord brought you out of from there. Nothing with leaven may be eaten. Today in the month of Aviv you are leaving. So when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to perform this ceremony during this month. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is to be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread must be eaten throughout the seven days. No leavened bread is to be seen among you. No yeast is to be seen among you anywhere in your entire territory. On that day you are to explain this to your son. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This will serve as a sign for you on your wrist and a reminder on your forehead so that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a mighty hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You must keep this regulation at its appointed time from year to year. And so certainly they would have wanted to serve God and to obey his commands, to honor their Lord. And that's exactly why they went to the tomb as soon as they could on the day after the Sabbath. Not just to pay their respects, to stand and to contemplate the loss of their friend. They went to anoint Jesus with the spices they had prepared. This was the normal Jewish custom, a special honor given to the dead. And these women couldn't bear the thought that Jesus would have a burial without the proper honors. So they waited until the Sabbath was complete. And the first moments they were able to go and serve him at dawn, and they went to work. But then a reversal of things met them. They discovered, when they got to the tomb, there was no work for them to do. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, the angel said to them. I know you mean to serve his body, to give him the honors of burial, but you don't need to. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. At that moment, that tomb became a pulpit for the proclamation of the gospel. That vacant place gave a clear gospel testimony that death was powerless, and that Jesus was victorious. Consider also the fact that Jesus rose on this day. That was no accident either. He had kept the Sabbath as well, resting and doing no work the day before, that Saturday. 
Six days you are to serve and do all your regular work, says the third commandment. But the seventh day shall be a Sabbath rest to the Lord your God. Do not do any regular work, neither you nor your sons nor daughters, nor your male or female servants, nor your cattle, nor the alien who is residing inside your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. In this way the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So just think about this. When God created the world, he worked for six days. He created light on day one, and he filled that light with the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. On the second day, he made the seas and the sky, and he inhabited them with fish and birds on the fifth day. On the third day, he made the dry land and the plants, and he filled that land with animals on the sixth day, including human beings to rule over creation. And then on the seventh day, he rested. That pattern of weeks repeated over and over ever since throughout the history of the world. We still observe that today. And now look at the last week of Jesus' life. Certainly he had been working throughout his life, especially in his public ministry for the last three years. But on the first day, he brought his light into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. On the second day, he cursed a fig tree and cleansed the temple because neither one was serving God as it ought to have been. On the third day, he taught about faith and his authority, and he taught more of the same on the fourth day. On the fifth day, he served his disciples and washed their feet, and he gave them a new testament, the sacrament of his body and blood. And then he prayed, and he was betrayed. On the sixth day, he suffered and was put to death, and he finished his work. He said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And so on the Sabbath day... He rested. And when he rose again on the next day, the pattern of weeks was effectively concluded. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were coming, but the body belongs to Christ. The Sabbath, you see, was meaningful only in the preparation for the rest that finally came in Christ. The Sabbath's work is done, and your work is done. Jesus concluded it. And now we are in the eighth day, the Easter day, the eternal day. The law, in fact, has no hold on us any longer. Indeed, what the law was unable to do because it was weakened by the sinful flesh, God did. And when he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin, God condemned sin in his flesh so that the righteous decree of the law would be fully satisfied in us who are not walking according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law cannot condemn us because of its strict commands. Jesus has kept it and kept it perfectly. And we are joined to Jesus by faith. And therefore we are also righteous in him. For this reason, Luther writes, the teaching of the commandments, therefore, makes no Christian. Look at the new work that was given to these women to do. Go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And look, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Compare that to the work that Jesus gave the disciples to do before he ascended into heaven, saying, therefore, go and gather disciples from all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them 
to keep all the instructions I have given you. In Luke's gospel, we see how Jesus summarized this commission. This is what is written, and so it must be, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That is, this is nothing other than the gospel. We can grow discouraged at the increasing ungodliness and wickedness of the world around us. How can people be this way? How can they think such behavior is okay? We want to make sure the Ten Commandments get posted in prominent places so people know that what they're doing is wrong. But remember again what Luther said, the teaching of the commandments makes no Christian. And St. Paul said this too, For this reason no one will be declared righteous in his sight by works of the law, for through the law we only become aware of sin. That's really all the law does. The Ten Commandments, all they do is increase our despair. God is angry with us. That's what they say. A dark cloud is hanging over us because none of us has done what the law demands. That's what these commandments tell us. We could go out with the mission to tell the world just how angry God is at our sin. And the thing is, we wouldn't be wrong. The law does proclaim that, and it's true, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But St. Paul wishes to emphasize something different, something given by the Holy Spirit, a commission given by Jesus, a new work to do, same emphasis that's given to all the apostles and all believers in Jesus, I have an obligation, says Paul, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm eager to proclaim the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed by faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's true that our Christian message is one of both law and gospel. The law shows God's wrath against sin. The law shows our diagnosis. We're dead. We're dying. But that's not where it ends. And it's not up to us either to decide how much law a person needs to hear. We're tasked, just like these women, to declare the gospel, the good news that Jesus gives his righteousness to all people. The Holy Spirit empowers that gospel that we speak and he surges along with it and he creates faith in the hearts who hear it when they receive it and they receive also then Jesus' righteousness and life. And Luther said this too. Yes, the entire gospel that we preach is based on this point that we properly understand this article about Jesus, the risen Son of God, as that upon which our salvation and all our happiness rests. It is so rich and complete, that we can never learn it fully. We can never learn it fully. So remember that too, the next time it seems useless to declare the truth about Jesus with someone. Well, maybe it is that they've never actually heard that Jesus really paid for their sins, really defeated their death, really won their eternal glory and happiness. Or maybe they've forgotten Maybe you have two from time to time. 
After all, it's so rich and complete, we can never learn it fully. So I'm reminding you today, he has risen, just as he said. That means that you can trust every single one of his promises. If you can't trust the word of someone who brought himself back to life after promising that he would do it, then who can you trust? Now we have this completely reliable word, and with it we have the sacrament of baptism by which you are joined to Jesus' death and resurrection. We have the sacrament of Holy Communion by which Jesus feeds you the body which died and rose and the blood which purchased your life. You have forgiveness from him. You have life from him. You have joy from him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.